and welcome to a very special, special features episode of War Starts at Midnight. I'm Chris Gallagher. And I'm Hunter Cates. Now, if you didn't get enough of us muttering about Martin Scorsese last week, well, you're in for a treat. We're taking a deep and formal dive into the American auteur's 50-year career. Can we make it out of this conversation without a criminal record or a crippling addiction to coke and lewds? Stay tuned and find out. Joining us today to discuss the work of Martin Scorsese. He's a friend of the show, a contributor to the film website PsychoDriveIn.com, a longtime maven of Martin Scorsese Pictures, and a chef. Peterson Hill, thanks for traveling all the way from Atlanta, Georgia, Hotlanta, Georgia, to join us in the war bunker. Uh, did you have to take a red eye to get here? I did, right out of work. So luckily the interstate did not fall on my way. I already got out, so... Well, I because okay, I'm glad you took a flight because I did. I didn't wasn't sure if Marta went all the way to the Midwest. Yeah, Marta barely goes to where I live. <laughs> Perfect. Um, speaking of where you live, a lot of film production is taking place in in Atlanta right now. Um, have you witnessed any of that? Uh, I've actually witnessed quite a bit. Um, where I used to work, uh, twice while I was there, they shut down the bar. And they had two movies filmed there. One, actually three movies. One was Flight. One was uh, Million Dollar Arm, starring none other than John Hamm. And Triple Nine, starring everyone. Triple Nine. Was that the, uh, oh gosh, what's his name? The, the Australian. Casey Affleck, Woody Harrelson, Anthony Mackie. Yeah, but it's the. Oh, the, yeah, that one. Okay. But the the guy that did, uh, oh gosh, the proposition. John Hillcoat. Yeah. John, John Hillcoat. Yeah. Right on, right on. Proposition's great. I have not seen Triple Nine, though. I haven't either because it looked real, real bad. And it interfered with your bar hopping. So there's probably some bitterness there. Speaking of bitterness, I mean, so have you found your life interfered with much by the encroaching of the film industry? <laughs> no. I mean, does that bug you? I mean, right when right when it came big into the city, I remember I was at Georgia State University and they were filming The Walking Dead and I kind of turned my head, looked down and there's... Hundreds of zombies uh, in that first episode is what they're filming. All right. Well, one more little biography question for us here. And then we'll get get to what we're we're supposed to talk about here is how does a chef become a film buff or a film buff become a chef? What's what's your journey? So I'm not actually a chef. I'm a general manager of a restaurant. I do the front of the house stuff um, and I am big into beverage. I'm uh, actually – Wine, beer, cocktails, that's my forte. Um, right on. Actually, I know tons about uh, the culinary side, but I'm the front of the house guy. How much do you cringe at my beer pairings? Um, You know what? Because a lot of them are regionally based. I don't know a lot of them. Um, the, oh, that's true. Like, do you guys get prairie there, though? Yeah, we get prairie. Um, okay. And I'm, you know, I like beer, but I'm Jacob, like you. I'm probably, I'm more on the wine side. Um on the cocktail side, I can do one or two beers and then I'm way down. Okay. Okay. Well, that really disappoints me because I was really hoping that you were going to ream Chris over the coals for his <laughs> beer recommendations. Well, luckily, you know, being the restaurant we are, we actually added Lining Kugel Summer Shandy to our list yesterday. <laughs> and oh, believe it or not, it'll sell. No, I mean, no, I believe it. No, I totally believe no it. No doubt in my mind. Have you chugged two in a row? Yes. I, I choose not to drink diet skunk piss. <laughs> diet diet skunk piss. Yeah, that's, that's nice. At least it's diet though, so you're not gaining any unnecessary calories. All right. Um 
So let's go ahead and start on Martin Scorsese. I'm actually going to begin with you, Peterson, on potentially the hardest question there is. What is a Martin Scorsese picture? Well, I think it's become a little bit harder to gauge that in the past couple of years. And I think silence really is a perfect example of that. Um, yeah. Is kind of prolific as he has been, silence has been a little bit of a culmination for him, I think. And he couldn't have made it 15 years ago, probably even 20 years ago. And it's very interesting to look at it in comparison to something like Last Temptation of Christ. Um, but then also look at it alongside what he made last, which is The Wolf of Wall Street. You know, yeah. The Wolf of Wall Street, which is what you'd say is probably a stereotypical Scorsese picture in editing and style and form. Um, silence lacks all of that kind of bluster and veneer. And I don't, you know, it came out yesterday that he's interested in kind of staying on these philosophical and religious films. So it's, it'll be interesting to see what he does next, I think. So then to that point, would you say that there really isn't a, quote, Martin Scorsese picture? Well, I think there used to be. And I think that from that, you know, it's the struggle of math, masculinity. It is the yeah. look at guilt, particularly Catholic guilt. And I think that within... If you don't recognize a Scorsese picture within 90 seconds of a stereotypical one, then you haven't ever seen a Scorsese movie. Mm -hmm. Anything from Bringing Out the Dead to Taxi Driver to After Hours, they all had that absolutely Scorsese touch. Well, there's an energy to them. Some have even gone so far as to say, because believe it or not, it's been so much part of our film culture, we've forgotten this, but he introduced rock music and popular music or at least popularized it very much and so the energy and dynamism of his cutting some have even gone so far as to say he kind of ushered in the music video with his yeah. editing and, and use of rock and roll I, I think it's interesting that you you bring up bringing out the dead and after hours as as examples because those are movies that like on their face don't like they don't just hearing the premise or whatever they don't seem like oh that's naturally a scorsese movie but then you get into it and it has both of them have these little moments like like after hours there's there's a few um shots in particular that that are just kind of burred into my my mind um one the keys coming down uh from like the the third story window or whatever do you know you know what i'm talking about it's like it's like a pov of the keys coming directly at um, gosh, I forget it's forget Griffin Dunn, but Griffin Dunn. It's yeah. yeah, things like why on earth would you film it that way? Who would yeah. film it that yeah, way? But it's, it's that, it, but it's that energy mm-hmm. that, that he always seems to have. That's very much the Scorsese thing is you watch it and, and there's nobody else alive who would choose to cover a scene like that. Yeah. But it's, and, and he's always, from what I understand, he's always been someone who storyboards meticulously, even, even as far back as who's that knocking at my door. Um, and you only get some of those, uh, those sort of energetic camera moves out of being able to know in, you know, in your mind where everything is going to be at, at any point to know that it's going to come together. And then I think his relationship with, uh, Thelma Schumacher also like they sort of have this just hand in hand, right. get along. No, and, absolutely. And a good way to describe in a way I've heard him described several times is confident, which is funny because if you listen to him talk or you just know about his biography, he doesn't strike you as a confident human being. Well, so he's almost, very, I think he's very humble in like any time it's. I feel like as an individual and, and correct me if I'm wrong guys, but I feel like as an individual, he's very 
doubtful about himself, but his confidence comes through in his films because he doesn't do the coverage, standard coverage. Mm -hmm. He films it in ways that how, why on earth would someone do that except that they're very confident in their camera? Well, but I think part of that is, you know, he's, he is one of these filmmakers, one of the first filmmakers that was sort of a uh, student of film of, Mm -hmm. you know, that actually went to film school to study film and cinema. And so he gets the language. He understands how to communicate through it. And I think one thing you see is when he's working, he was that, you know, seven-year-old asthmatic kid that couldn't go play in the yard and he had to go watch films and he had to be on the couch. And so that restraint of being a little kid, and then now he basically lets it explode on screen. I mean, you know, The Departed, the first 20 minutes of that movie is exposition. It's all it is, but it's unbelievably engrossing to watch because he is constantly kind of pulling between narratives and the dialogue obviously is incredibly snappy from that script by William Monaghan, but nobody could shoot that the way Scorsese does. It's 20, 20 minutes. that feels like 20 seconds. Well, and and how often does he do that though? Where like, you know, voiceover is generally deemed the thing that you should never do unless you absolutely have to. And there's a lot of a lot of films that are sort of I mean, The Departed being an example, Goodfellas being an example, Silence being an example where they are integral to the film working. But the thing that he does is he doesn't use it as a crutch. He almost uses it as a way to say, "Okay, you're getting all this exposition. So I'm going to get even more inventive and creative and show you things that aren't, you know, it's not just showing you on screen what you're hearing, but he's showing you something on screen that is advancing the story forward in a completely different direction. A lot of times Mm -hmm. he's not using, he's not using the voiceover to cover his own ass, so to speak. The voiceover is legitimately what the character is thinking as something else is going on. And that's life itself. You know what I mean? That's how we live life is we're doing something, but we're thinking something else. Yeah. But he's, he's covering space. You know, he's, he's diving and, and saying, okay, we're going to, we're going to mash these two things together to condense everything to get, I mean, because his, his movies are long and dense, almost all of them. But, uh, there's, there's just so much that he packs in that, uh, I, with, with the exception of a few, like I think gangs in New York could probably trim 20 minutes and be fine. But with the exception of, of some outliers like that, most of them, even, you know, if they're pushing the two and a half hour or, or Wolf of Wall Street, nearly three hour mark, like they still move at an amazing pace. They, they, the arc of what they go through is incredible. So Peterson, Chris brought this up and then you brought this up too. Martin Scorsese is a student of film. He's voracious consumer of it. He has said before, anytime someone says, oh, Martin, you're the greatest living director. He gets, he's, he's diffident about it because he says, well, no, I just, I steal from other people. So my question to you is, is, is Martin Scorsese wrong when he says, I'm not the greatest director living, I'm just stealing from other people? Well, I think that any great artist is going to steal. And if they don't, then they're lying. You know, look at every single kind of prodigy that uh, Scorsese has brought on. I mean, you have the less successful, in my opinion, like David O. Russell, and then you have the Paul Thomas Andersons who, you know, could probably fight for that great greatest director of all. Uh, actually, sorry, greatest director living currently. Yeah, and he as he's really ushered in a new crop of young filmmakers. And I think it's hard to say, hey, this is the greatest filmmaker currently working. You know, because 
is the work Scorsese was doing 20 years ago better than what he's doing now? No, it's different. And he yeah. couldn't have made what he's doing now 20 years ago. And I think that like any director, it's his constant evolution. And I think Scott, Silence really is a movie that's going to be looked at in 20 years. And we're going to ask, maybe this is one of his best films. And I think we've come to a point with Scorsese where we judge his movies harder than maybe any other living filmmaker. Because Spielberg, he comes out with a movie, and obviously we all love Spielberg because he's, he's Spielberg, but he isn't judged as hard because he's not coming out with a statement with every movie. Every time a Scorsese movie comes out, it's a landmark event and everybody gets excited. And he takes two or three years between projects. He's not doing one to two a year like Spielberg sometimes does. And he is making a definitive statement of this is the purpose and this is what I'm doing. And I think Silence, certainly in the last 20 years, is the movie that you can tell this was what he made. He was born to make. Well, well I, I, I certainly hope so. Well, and Peterson, we talked or briefly sort of, I don't know if it was on Twitter or Letterboxd or where, but, um, you know, it talked a little bit about, about silence. And, you know, I think it is like, if, even if Scorsese makes another 10 movies, like I find it hard to, to think that he's going to make something that feels more like the pinnacle of everything that he has done in his career. And yet he continues to surprise us. And yet he continues to surprise us. Absolutely. Absolutely. For sure. But, but it's just, it, it brings everything together. Hunter, to your question though, about being a student of film and, and, um, his sort of deference to, uh, those who came before him and Mm -hmm. saying, oh, well, I'm just stealing. I think there's a difference between someone like Martin Scorsese or one of my favorites, Wes Anderson, who, uh, both of those directors are constantly, making reference to or homage to or or stealing, you know, be it composition or story structure or whatever from previous masters before them. There's a difference between that and someone like Eli Roth, who's just like, oh, I'm going to put a Quentin Tarantino movie on the TV because I think it's cool. I hope we, I hope our Eli Roth fans, if we have any, you know, the email address. Let us know how you feel about. Uh, are there any, aren't there any more of those left out there after was it the Green Inferno or oh the the, the cannibal I, like South yeah, American the, cannibal movie? This was like cannibal holocaust for yeah. for now. For the digital age, um, yeah. as Chris well knows, I can talk for hours about Cannibal Holocaust. <laughs> so I'm going to try and, and tr- try and steer this steer this back. Um, so Chris, I asked Peterson this. I'll ask you this: What is a Martin Scorsese picture? Um, I mean, like he said, it's I, I think it's very tough to define. But I think the the binding to me, there's two binding elements. One is the craft of just the way that he structures his. Um, his films, like Peterson said, like you put on a Scorsese film and you know, nearly instantly, even if you come in the middle of it, that it's that it's him just with the energy, be it the uh, the acting, the blocking, the camera movement, the editing, all of that. Um, there's just there is something to it. Uh, but then also the in, in a more uh, or in, in on a level that's harder to define the personal sort of. He he finds a way to make me care about characters that I really don't like. Um, and I think that's partially bringing a personal element to it and partially partially uh, the way that he allows you to empathize with um, anyone like he gives he gives characters the time for you to care about them. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's not something that is exclusively him. But I do think it is a defining trait of his work. Right on. Well, OK, 
Okay, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Peterson. I was going to ask, you know, do you think partly why we empathize well as characters is because a little bit of him is in all of them. I mean, I mean, looking at the Wolf of Wall Street, not that he was, you know, Jordan Belfort, but, you know, obviously, we you know, he had his struggles with drug addiction and, you know, the 70s and 80s weren't necessarily the most kind to him. Right. Um, looking at that, like, do we empathize with Jordan Belfort in some way because Scorsese is putting himself in that seat in some way? I, I think there's probably some of that. I mean, I think I don't think Scorsese makes with the exception of maybe something like Shutter Island. I'm not sure who he like relates to in a film like like that. But I, I think he does find something to attach to all of these characters, even if it's just like he can empathize with them. And by that, he uh, he really zones in on that and then allows us to see. I'm not sure I would say empathy is the word, because, again, I go back to confidence is I feel like Martin Scorsese I don't feel like I know he's an asthmatic kid who didn't play sports and probably felt weak yeah his strength is embodied through film take Goodfellas for instance that was what he watched looking out of his window as a, as a little kid is watching those gangsters and he right. kind of looked for lack of better words looked up to him and thought they were cool right I but think what about he is cool through film like that's that's how he becomes he 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 lives vicariously through these characters and that's how we are able to like them and the dynamic is is that on the one hand we empathize with them because he empathizes with them and almost glorifies them or makes them heroes but at the same time they're horrible characters and he can't shy away from that yeah. so there's that dynamism that conflict yeah and it's i mean i think it also he said as much as it's something that he sort of particularly with the gangsters it's something that he just grew up with around and that's i think you can find connections even that that go out to someone like a Jake LaMotta who's you know, obviously he wasn't athletic, so he he didn't naturally relate to a boxer. But what he did relate to was the, you know, sort of the living room discussions, the big, mm-hmm. you know, heated arguments, those sorts of things. And he um, he found a way to bring, you know, bring that to the front of um, of his story. Uh, Hunter, I, I want to now turn it over to you. What to you? defines Scorsese as a director, as from his films, whatever. Chris, you are going to love this answer. Oh boy. You are going to love this answer. <laughs> if I could describe Martin Scorsese's films in a single word, it is Catholic. Oh yeah, of course. And and <laughs> by and by Catholic I mean that he is a is all of his films, all of his characters, all of his stories evidence a tremendous faith in whatever that film is about, but also a deep uncertainty. Mm-hmm. And it's that conflict between the faith and the belief in what when what's going on and what the people are doing, but also the uncertainty about why they're doing it and what the ultimate end is. And I think part of that's echoed in one of the last lines of Shutter Island when he says, you know, with, what the uh, DiCaprio says, which would be worse to live as a monster or to die as a good man. You know, I think that's entangled in all those movies. And I think, you know, I think one thing you left out, Chris, is when talking about Jake Amata is the self-loathing that, Oh yeah. I think that Scorsese really, you know, particularly from a Catholic perspective and looks and says, well, he is a man of sin. I'm a man of sin and I exist in this sin every single day. And that's taken all the way up until, you know, where we are now. And it's very hard to look outside of Scorsese or sorry, with his films and not talk about kind of his relationship to religion because he was so close to being a priest. 
Let's play a game here. Oh, boy. Um, what kind of priest would Father Scorsese be? Peterson, I'll let you uh, go first. Yeah, because this is a hard one. That's a good question. I think he'd want to be kind of in some way like the two Jesuit priests you see in Silence. I think he wants to be like uh, Rodriguez and uh, Garupe. And I think he wants to be that. But I don't think he has that kind of blind faith that they do. And I think... So he's more of a Kikichiro. He's more of a Kikichiro, yeah. I don't think he would ever be the kind of priest that you sit down and talk with and, you know, he's going to tell you, hey, this is the way that, you know, God exists in the world and this is what you should do. He, I think he would be like uh, the Kenneth Lonergan character in You Can Count on Me, which if you haven't seen that movie in a while, he tells the Mark Ruffalo character, you know, is there any way for you to kind of believe in what you do and not necessarily through a God, but kind of as being a good person in some way. Well, this is great fun, Chris. Um, okay. Your turn. Father, Father Scorsese. I think, man, I, that's a, that, that's a, it's a tough thing to like define. Cause it's as I, I feel like it would be different than him as a, as a director. Um, I think because as a director, as you say, he is confident, but as a person, he is sort of like, um, jittery. J- yeah, yeah. Yeah. You can see me moving jittery, around yeah. here and here in my seat. He he's, he's jumpy. He's, um, he, he's not exactly the priest you would go to for sage advice. I think, um, as for, for spiritual, uh, uh, issues kind of reminds me of, uh, an old Melville film with Jean-Paul Belmondo, uh, called Leon Morin priest, where he, he basically plays this priest who, uh, is a, uh, well, a, a sage figure uh, to this this young lady played by Emmanuel Riva, beautiful young Emmanuel Riva, um, and I, I I think he would fit that uh, fit that character quite a bit in that that character. He he tries his best. He's really earnest in attempting to uh, bring out the best in his flock, but at the same time, he he wavers a little bit in his own confidence, mm-hmm. and I I think there would be a bit of that with Scorsese. Like he would he would still be a flawed human and you would feel that yeah. um, as which, which, you know, it's, we're lucky that he decided to go into cinema instead of, uh, I, I, maybe, maybe not. I don't know. Um, I had a priest at my high school, um, who was Mexican and he was about five foot three. I kid you not. And anyway, his, he was, he was a faithful man. Of course he was a priest his entire life, but, um, he had a tap in the tennis room. Like he kept, he kept beer in the tennis room and that's what he was known for is he kept, he kept a bar cap in the tennis room. Was he making his own? Was he like, not as far as I know. No, I think it was, I think it was uh, brought in, but, um, that's kind of what I see Martin Scorsese as. And he, and like I said, he was a faithful person, but his (laughs) loyalty primarily was to my high school Mm -hmm. is, is his faith was evidenced by his loyalty to the school. So I can see father. Scorsese being loyal to his faith and practicing his faith through whatever high school or whatever church he worked at. Does that yeah. make sense? No, I, I get that. Is this theoretical father Scorsese? Do you want him to be the father who's going to be around your kids or not? I mean, I don't know. I mean, that's <laughs> high school kids. I, I think little children, he wouldn't know what to 
Yeah, like to, he wouldn't know what to say or do. Well, to to follow like another another uh, metaphor, like Uncle Scorsese would be great once the kids reach a teenage. Once they're ready yeah, for yeah. Uncle slash Father Scorsese, he would, he would probably be terrifying and intense for the youngsters. Yeah, I, th- I think that's a that's a good way to distinguish it. But I also think that there would be some, and this is this would be kind of interesting. I think there'd be some element of what if with him. Is he'd always, what if I had become a filmmaker instead? Yeah. Which, honestly, I kind of think we get now is what if I had become a priest instead? Oh, yeah, sure. Which is, you sure. know, kind of fun to think about as everyone thinks, oh, well, why should you have any regrets? You're a multimillionaire director, but... Well, and, you know. and I think part of that is his his struggle with confidence. Part of that is just his, like, sort of, he's always, he's always seems to be repositioning himself in different from from different vantage points and i think that's what makes his film so or part of what makes his film so interesting is he's uh he allows you i mean you look at you look at his catalog of of narrative feature length films i'm not like i i don't want to i don't know about you guys i i will just say i am very lean on his uh documentary works um and you don't like him or you haven't no seen I, I haven't seen many. okay i've seen very few um which is a whole nother, probably a whole nother discussion, but, uh, they, as, as much as there is the, you know, like line of like the gangster, you know, from mean streets to Goodfellas to casino to, uh, or the, the men behaving badly sort of movies, there's still, there's still something that seems to be rotating. And that's what I think keeps all of his films fresh over, you know, over the span of 50 years is you still don't know exactly how he's going to approach it mm-hmm. and exactly what you're going to get out of it. Yeah, exactly. It's a new film each time. So we've talked very a lot about Martin Scorsese, the in in broad terms, the Martin Scorsese the person, Martin Scorsese the artist. Let's talk about the films. You guys may not be comfortable ready to make this jump. Not your favorite Martin Scorsese picture, but what is the best Martin Scorsese picture? What is his masterpiece? We'll start with you, Peterson. And again, this isn't your favorite. This is what you think is his masterpiece, which it may be the same. Well, it's tough for me. I think there's, you know, harder than any other filmmaker. He's got two or three that I kind of go back to time and time again. For me, I probably would say Taxi Driver is that one for me. It's the first one that I came to. It's the first one that I really saw. There, There's a director. There's somebody having their hand on the levers and we can see all the different choices being made. And I think all of his preoccupations are in taxi driver. And certainly I think it may be, if not the best, but one of the three or four best performances by any actor in a Scorsese film, you've got both Robert uh, De Niro and uh, Jodie Foster. You have Sybil Shepard You've got a young Albert Brooks. You have a obviously Harvey Keitel and his obsession with male masculinity. And I think it gets underrated in some way as a post Vietnam film. And I get, I know you guys just talked about Apocalypse Now, but it's what if you have one of those characters coming back into the kind of theoretical vil, uh, jungle of New York? Yeah. And how lost in out at sea that De Niro character is, where he could possibly imagine a great first date would be to take Civil Shepherd to a porn movie. But it's also, but it's also sort of a western in, and I, I think um, Paul Schrader even has said as much that you know something like Searchers or or 
um, some of those more melancholy Westerns. Was he's, his inspiration. Yeah, he's exploring that oh, as well. Absolutely. What I love about Taxi Driver is the, you know, we can always talk about, well, this film was personal to the director. This film was personal to the actor or to the screenwriter. Taxi Driver is the only film I can think of that was personal to all three. Yeah. You know, this was this was something that they all felt and they were all they all believed. And that was just the loneliness of of the male in the big city. But they also brought they each brought something different. Yeah, to they that all narrative. they all felt the same emotion. They all had the same emotion and it was all expressed in, in their own unique ways. And so that's what I love about Taxi Driver is it's in many ways his masterpiece, De Niro's masterpiece and Schrader's masterpiece. And that's but for different reasons. And I think, you know, looking at it, too. If there's not a more terrifying cameo by a director in his own movie, oh my god, I don't know. What yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah. that was yeah. that was my first exposure to Scorsese the Man as well, and it was <laughs> oh my god, who is this guy? Yeah, um, and, it, and of all the cameos to play, I mean, that's telling, right? Well, but it's not like you know the the guy the guy broke his leg like the day before or something, and it was just he had to fill in. You know, well, okay, not, then maybe that's at Providence. Least, at least maybe that's, may- at least that's the story yeah. that, that he tells. Mm-hmm. Well, but, and I think that you see the seeds too in Taxi Driver of that ending being very kind of surreal in a way that would really come back later in movies like Shutter Island. Um, and that surrealist nature in The Aviator as well. What about something like The End of King of Comedy? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think King of Comedy, if it's, you know, it's not my number two or three. I mean, it's, it's right there at four. I mean, I think Scorsese is at the top of his form when dealing with, I think, particularly editing, but also dealing with actors in that movie. Mm-hmm. And what's what's cool about Kino Comedy as relates to Taxi Drivers, I remember hearing or reading an interview with Martin Scorsese wherever what was the name of the Robert De Niro character in Kino Comedy? Rupert, Rupert Pupkin. Pupkin. He said that Rupert Pupkin in his mind is just as terrifying as Travis Bickle. Yeah. Well he's he he's almost a Travis Bickle in a different uh scenario. Yeah. All right, Chris. Not your favorite. And it may be the same, but not your favorite. Best slash Martin Scorsese masterpiece. By the way, we've I, at least I've been going between Martin Scorsese and Martin Scorsese. Do yeah. you all have a preference or no? I I try to do Scorsese because he says it's Scorsese, but I also he also is the type of guy that would be like, yeah, it's, you, you get close, you're fine. Yes. I I go back and forth between the two. Then we'll the just time. continue going back and forth. All right, he talks a million miles a minute too. So yeah, yeah, it's hard to tell. All right, his masterpiece. Sorry. Um. You know, I probably I still need to linger and revisit it a few times, but honestly, silence is gunning for that for me to be to be perfectly frank. What I like about that answer is a as as the biblical phrase goes, a prophet is never loved in his own country. And so this is a film that I'm not going to say it was un, not appreciated, but it just it, the the it, the reception it got was, I think, smaller than what it deserved and so yeah many times filmmakers masterpieces are the ones that people don't appreciate in their own time and so this as as you said peterson is this might be something that people look back on in the future and like holy mackerel that was something else you know yeah so i i I, that's what i I appreciate about that answer i think you know i think so if if not that i mean taxi driver is I don't know if it's the obvious answer, but it's the I'll say this. Taxi Driver is the film that I wrote the most papers about in college, <laughs> bar none. <laughs> like um, I wrote 
I wrote at least a half dozen papers, including like I wrote a paper in my human sexuality class, which was just like, you know, a block class to fill in a, a, a section of mm-hmm. uh, my well-rounded liberal arts education. Um, and, but it's it's the type of it's a movie that no matter how many times I've seen it and it's it's definitely in the double digits, you know, pushing maybe 20 plus. Um, the only I think the only Scorsese movie I've seen more is probably Goodfellas because I'd watch it like once every six months for a while. Um, but still being as familiar as I am with it, every time I go back to it, there is something new that I gather from it or, and maybe this speaks to your talking about how Schrader, De Niro and Scorsese each, you know, brought something personal to it because there's those different vantage points to look at. Um, there's just, you know, I, I find myself in, you know, in Bickle's shoes in a different way each time, mm-hmm. or just just approaching the material itself uh, differently, and that's it, it's almost a Rubik's cube in that way. Right. All right, my turn. I really want to just you know punt this, but um, <laughs> but that would be wrong of me. Silence was a wonderful answer for what you said. Taxi Driver is a wonderful answer. So I'm not saying that this is my fine. This is the definitive. No, but I'll I'll go ahead and just argue in for its favor is in many cases a masterpiece is just the one that people say is the masterpiece. You know what I mean? It's the yeah. one that people say yeah. th- because it inspires the most people. It's what they get the most out of. And so Raging Bull, even if it's not necessarily my favorite, even if I that surprises me just because of how like you I mean, not to say that you didn't like it in our in our mm-hmm. Civil War discussion but you had a lot of criticism to no absolutely and so it's been, it. no and so absolutely and so like i said i could argue in favor of tax driver and i could argue in favor of silence but for the interests of conversation and many times <laughs> what defines a masterpiece is just the one that people say like i said say mm-hmm. is a masterpiece that they get the most out of well, and that would be raging Bull. it is a huge turning point in his career as well though it's you know it not to say that the 80s were necessarily a just clear path of greatness um, obviously he had a lot of, a lot of Rocky, uh, Rocky roads ahead. With... I like that you said Rocky cause the, how many Rocky movies were in the eighties? <laughs> I think they're just two, but, uh, I couldn't tell you because yeah. I've only seen, yeah, only clearly seen you haven't seen Rocky four. If you say Aren't there four in the eighties, there's gotta be four Rockies in the eighties. I think is, three is, and four. Is Tommy machine gun in the nineties? Yes. He's in the nineties. Okay. Yeah, he was, was 1990. Um, Ooh. all right. So Peterson, you wanted to talk about, um, performances so let's let's go with that because he had a in his younger years a relationship with robert de niro in his later years a relationship with leonardo DiCaprio. so why is it that martin scorsese seems to bring the best out of the best actors i don't even know if he brings that i think he approaches them for parts that he knows that they can be great in and i think it took a minute with DiCaprio. i think he's serviceable in gangs in new york and then he gets Better and better and better. And by the time he's in Wolf of Wall Street, I think you see him being really at the top of his game. I think that is a, pardon the pun, but Titanic performance from him. Um, <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, I, I don't. I don't get it. What do you? I, what's the I, joke I you're trying to make this. there? <laughs> what's 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 well, the joke you're trying to make there? That's not. I'm playing. <laughs> well, because he has that moment where it's the wrecking ball scene. You know, to get me out of here, they got to get a wrecking ball, and mm-hmm. uh, in that scene, which is. I'd say it's got to be seven or eight minutes long where he basically saying goodbye. And then throughout that seven or eight minute scene, he convinces himself, yeah. nope, I'm going to stay. And it is his understanding of what the strengths of an actor are 
And I think you see that obviously with DiCaprio and with uh, De Niro, who, you know, De Niro is, I mean, incredible in Taxi Driver. But by the time he gets to Raging Bull with him, he is an actor at the top of his game. Here's here's how I would distinguish the two is Scorsese and De Niro grew up together. And so it's a great actor and a great director. And together, they're great. DiCaprio is an inst- instance of him cultivating and creating a great actor because Chris and I talked about this in our um, what was the name of that? The, the one he won the Oscar for. The Revenant. The Revenant. We talked about this in The Revenant. I could not conceivably hate an actor more than I hated Leonardo DiCaprio in (laughs) 2000. Like, because I I was, you know, I was a teenager. You know, I hated Leonardo DiCaprio. He's great. He's great in Titanic. Yeah. He's, but, but. It wasn't even his, it wasn't even the quality of the performance. I just hated him, like the, the, the pop cultural figure. But to, to that, I do think it's interesting. I think, I think he's pretty darn great as Frank William Abagnale in Catch Me If You Can, which is concurrent with Gangs of New York. Right. But, and maybe that's just, you know, that's more a like just fun character to not to say that there's not, not levels to him, but it's more just a showy, like, oh, let's have a whole lot of fun Mm -hmm. sort of character versus Scorsese's, you have to, you have to give some skin um, to and some flesh to really get in there with the characters that he likes to explore a lot of times. Right. And so I'm not taking away from Spielberg when I say this. DiCaprio in Catch Me If You Can was brilliant casting. The work with Scorsese is more him, like I said, molding a fantastic right. leading man. Seeing seeing someone who was capable and then, and, and and then, then bringing them up to yeah. bringing up to another level. And so that's the thing is if you could make 13 year old Hunter who despised Leonardo DiCaprio think he's excellent now, that's <laughs> that's pretty remarkable achievement. Because because as we know, you do still you love the things from your from from your formative youth years. I even like Titanic now because of (laughs) because of because totally derailing. You know who's great in Titanic? Kathy Bates. I was going to say. Yeah. I mean, yeah, she's She's incredible. in that. She's okay. What? What? Yeah, she's okay. I think the only two performances in that movie that really. I think her stand up or Kate Winslet and DiCaprio. I think they're both very good. And and Celine Dion. <laughs> I was I was really afraid you were gonna say Billy Zane. Ooh. That's another I, one. You know what? I remember walking out of Titanic and I like every red blooded American, I saw it like nine times in the theater. And I think it was the second or third time I saw it, I was walking out with my dad and he said, That Billy Zane, he deserves an Oscar nomination. And I was I think I was I must have been 11 years old or 12 years old walking out just thinking, huh? What? That is, that is the daddest quote I've ever heard, though. There, there, here's the, what we've seen demonstrated right here now. There is a rule when discussing film is that you cannot mention the name Leonardo DiCaprio without talking about Titanic, no matter what the subject is. <laughs> um, okay, so Chris, your opinions on Martin Scorsese and his relationship with actors? You know, I think there's honestly for me, I think there's maybe a bit too much put on focus on like, oh, well, he's he's a guy who's great with that, because I do think not not to say that the work that he has done with DiCaprio or the work that he did with um, De Niro isn't absolutely great and not to say that there it's not it doesn't build upon itself because I think it definitely does. You know, like um, I, I think it would have been hard to get someone like Rupert Pupkin out of. De Niro the first time out. 
Um, there, there's something to the, the comfortable level that they're working at by that mm-hmm. point. Um, but I, I don't think he necessarily needs the actors. If that, like he's, he's collecting them because they work well and collecting is maybe more, that's like a Hitchcockian mm-hmm. sort of, but, um, and I, well, okay, and I well, okay, do, okay. Then do you think that he treats actors like cattle for lack of I don't, words? I do not. I think, I think he nurtures them and I think he, um, and I think that's how he's able to get the performances that he does out of these, you know, difficult characters. And, you know, De Niro, the fact that De Niro says, oh yeah, I'm going to put on 50 pounds and, um, eat nothing but was it ice cream that he ate? I think he went to or, Italy and ate pasta. It was pasta. I think it was okay, De Niro's pasta. Ice that, cream was, uh, I think it was Brando. But that was just because. <laughs> that was yeah, exactly. <laughs> Wasn't for a role. Um, but, but you know, for for him to do that to his body and like just go through, um, go through all of all of the you know getting getting to peak physical condition and then and then sacrifice his entire mm-hmm. body for that and then say we're still friends we still have a because I feel like if Lars von Trier put a uh, put an actor through that never never even talk again that they like if if Lars von Trier is walking down the street and Bjork is is walking the opposite direction she she crosses the street yes, there's there's no relationship left there yeah but he's a yeah t- so what's cool about Martin Scorsese is there are camera directors and there are actor directors he's both yeah and that's a pretty remarkable achievement do you think do you think looking at it you know Scorsese obviously He's given great, or sorry, he's gotten great performance out of his actors, but I don't think there's been a lot of Academy Awards that have been given to his actors. You know, obviously, Robert De Niro, Raging Bull. Do you think the kind of the massiveness of his storytelling and the way his films explode off the screen is the reason you don't see his? I think it's in, and this isn't actually, this is 100% me being Mr. Conspiracy Theorist. I think <laughs> oh, that God. all of it, it, no, it's 100% that all of his movies are just not performances you give best actor awards to i mean they are but to that point they are these films that are a little more difficult and a little maybe a little too far outside of the what the academy is going to um no exactly no exactly zone in on right at, at the end when they're ready to say okay let's let's pat the industry on the back again like it's it's they're they're almost on a different plane of or a different like they're in a parallel universe and and so for the in the the raging bull example being is that they gave him that award not it was a brilliant performance of course but they gave him that award because he gained 40 pounds well That's, but it's also but it's also it's a boxing movie so right. hollywood's fine with boxing movies. yeah and so martin scorsese even though they're brilliant performances they're just for lack of better words too weird for what you give, what you give an Oscar to, maybe because I guess looking at you know Dale Day Lewis losing to Adrian Brody and the Pianist, yeah, you know, and, I mean Bill the Butcher to right now. If you ask fifty Americans on the street right now, they're going to remember Bill the Butcher, uh, Bill the Butcher, a lot more than they remember. Was it Wadsloff Spielman? Exactly, exactly, yeah. exactly. <laughs> Burn his ashes, see if the green. I love that. <laughs> Uh, okay, so actually we didn't talk – you just mentioned we ha- we've talked about DiCaprio and De Niro. There's less to work with with Day-Lewis, but let's talk about that relationship because on the one hand, you have Age of Innocence, which is probably the tamest Daniel Day-Lewis performance. And then on the other hand, you have Gains of New York, which is probably the most audacious, or at least yeah. next to There Will Be Blood. Yeah, I was, was going to say. But, what, but I honestly, I mean, I, he tapped his glass eye before he st- – I mean, that's <laughs> – everything – 
He's got he's got an eagle and a shield in his eye. Is that the best scene of that movie too? When he's just sitting there draped in the blanket or the American flag, yeah. like ah. Uh, and I remember, I, I remember I back also, when I had DVDs. That was the that was the scene that opened the second disc. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> I also love the part whenever he was headbutting. Leonardo DiCaprio and it looked like he was smashing through his skull like I thought oh my god is he dead he's, he's headbutting his lifeless body there all of it is just incredible but my point being is that on the one hand you have the tamest performance and on the one hand you have one of the most audacious but the the performance in Age of Innocence is very nuanced though which is something that like I, I don't know, like, who would have been the same guy around the, the time. Keanu Reeves is the wrong answer, but it's it's the one that's coming to mind, I think, because of, uh, is it Much Ado About Nothing? that uh, There was that and then Dracula. Dracula, yeah. It, that's what I was maybe, thinking. yeah, but between those two, you know, around around the same time, around the same sort mm-hmm. of, you know, costume drama. Like, you you throw, and he's he is the wrong answer because he's Keanu Reeves. He's good at, he's a widget of actors. He's good at one particular kind of character. Um, and you take him outside of that and he, he has no idea where he, he should is. have been in Titanic, but well, well okay. <laughs> well, Billy Zane, you put, things, right? you put, you put Billy Zane in age of innocence and it's just going to be, you know, whatever. Right. Um, and Daniel day Lewis, he's it's, it's all in the restraint in that performance that, and that's, that's nothing to scoff at. Um, he's, he's really, because the entire, you know, the, the entire film, the entire, uh, story of of the film is you know about this restriction right and this holding everything back mm-hmm. and and so he gives a performance that completely and utterly aids what Scorsese is doing with the story and how awesome is it that you hire him to play restraint and he pulled it off you know yeah. what I mean but the last person you could ever think who would do restraint just because he's normally he's normally playing to the back row and in that film he's playing to the camera well and I, I let me ask this because I'm not honestly not familiar with earlier, you know, early nineties or, or eighties. Like, was he that way in my left foot or is it only that he's become the, well, this monster? I mean, my left foot, he's, I wouldn't say he's big cause he's playing somebody who's completely paralyzed, but I mean, he's always been relatively big. I mean, last of the Mohicans, he's, you know, he's, he's brooding and he's playing the part, but you wouldn't expect from that performance what he goes into with Kings of New York and then there will be blood. Yeah. You know, and then whatever he's working on with Paul Thomas Anderson. Now I I've always sort of felt that he sort of Kings of New York was almost a, like a, a ushering in a new, like just taking crazy because didn't he come out of retirement for, for that role? Right as well? there. Yeah. And that may be, there's a before Gaines of New York and after pretty sure that was nine. The Rob Marshall film nine. Is that Rob Marshall? No. Oh, yes. yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I think he came out of retirement. He was what a cobbler at that point in, in his life. No, because like, well, nine was right at no nine was right after uh, there will be blood. Yeah, it was two years after there will be blood. So I think he was a cobbler in Italy when he took the part in there will be blood, or maybe not a cobbler, something like that. Okay, it's now time for a hunter derail. Um, <laughs> a few years ago, Wes Studi uh, gave an interview at, at, at this Tulsa theater Aqua. function. And he, well, he was drunk as shit. <laughs> West Studi was. I don't know who West Studi is. He, have you seen Game, uh, uh, Last from the Mohicans? He's my no, 
you would recognize him. He's okay. he's he's one of those character actors and everything. But anyway, West Studio, he's from Oklahoma. He's uh, not the Indian in the Indian in the cupboard, is he? No. Okay. No. That's that's terrible that I said that. <laughs> but I, I know the Indian from the well, Indian I'm, cupboard well, is also I'm saying from, this Google from while I'm saying this Google West Studi. Okay. Um but anyway, West Studi was here and he said that whenever he was in Last of the Mohicans with Daniel Day Lewis that he sat next to Daniel Day Lewis in a bar and he said, Hey, why do you why do you you know, why are you so brooding and kind of just go into character and according to west studi drunk west studi daniel day lewis said i do it so people will leave me alone <laughs> so take it for what it's worth do you recognize him i now? recognize him yeah now, yeah mm-hmm. also since we're we're clearing up uh hunter you were right about rocky there were two rockies in the 70s two in the 80s one in the 90s and Creed and well, and then Balboa. And then, well, oh, Bal- of course, Balboa Balboa's pretty me. good, too. I, the, I've only seen Rocky and Creed and it made it and it made a Mitchie. You've seen the good. You've seen the best one then. OK, uh, what's y'all's favorite performance in a Scorsese film? I mean, that's a that's a big, long mm. question. But, you know, I guess I'll throw it to you first, Hunter. What do you think is kind of his his best directed performance? I feel like. For the same reason I said earlier, Travis Bickle in Taxi Driver, because again, that, that represented him, that represented De Niro, and that represented Paul Schrader, that character. So I'll, I'll, that'll be my answer. And then Joe Pesci in Goodfellas is just really scary. Absolutely terrifying. <laughs> he's, 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 he's like a step below Anton Chigurh. <laughs> You know, little crazy little people are just really scary. You know what I mean? So I make him the advantage for that reason. Okay. He's just such a live wire that that uh, you think I'm funny scene. Just, oh, yeah. Yeah. No, I was watching that just like 20 minutes before you came over. Yeah. And, and it's like still as much of I, as I've seen it. It's it's still like that in the spider scene. Um, like, yeah. I, I, I mean, yeah, he's nuts. Um, I I'm going to go contrarian. I'm since you didn't really, Hunter, I'll, I'll take your spot uh-huh. here. And I'll say it might be it might be Rupert Rupert Pupkin just in like it's it's again, it's a nuanced performance. It's a there's there's so much going on behind the eyes Mm -hmm. and it's like like you said, Peterson earlier, um, I think I think you were the one that brought it up. Um, He's sort of a Travis Bickle in a in a different world. And, and you really like, there is so much, and maybe it's maybe that connection also, but there's so much to just like, you know, that everything that he is expressing is not a 10th of what he's actually thinking. Mm -hmm. And there's this very maniacal sort of sense that you get, but at the same time, he's always so cheery and always so like, he's almost like the person who, who you meet and, and they're so happy all the time and just waiting for them to snap. And they never quite do. And then and then with the turn that he takes at the end and he like he pulls it off mm-hmm. or maybe he pulls it off like it's the way the way it the way it fully ends. You know, there's plenty of debate as to whether this is real or surreal or what's going on um, because it could easily go both ways. But there's it's just it's all the subtlety to to that character that I find really unnerving, which I think a lot of a lot of his leading men are but then at the same time sort of inviting mm-hmm. like it and it's it's that push pull that that gets me you know chris whenever you say contrarian i was hoping you meant contrarian and you were going <laughs> to say like nicholas cage and bringing out the dead or something like that <laughs> you know i i think nicholas cage does a great role like once every 10 years i don't think bringing out the dead is one of them it's, you know, it's, I, I think he's I the think, rock the rock was his crown jewel right <laughs> i think he's pretty good in bringing out the dead i think he's 
you know, obviously he's bringing his Nicolas Cage manic crazy energy to yeah. it. But he is – I mean, he had the, certainly not my favorite <laughs> Scorsese performance. But, you know, looking at that, I mean, he, I think he's really good in that movie. And I think Cage is an actor who, even in bad stuff, he's – at least interesting. He is he is interesting to watch for sure. But but it is it feels a little too much cage, like leaning on just knowing that cage is going to be uh, a little off the hinges uh, for, you know, to say, OK, you're going to be this insomniac tax or this insomniac ambulance driver. Go. And, and, like, and, that was, and, he, and he's like, I got this. That's, that's all his direction. Uh, yeah, yeah, I get that. All right, Peterson, your turn. Greatest Martin Scorsese performance. I'm going to I'm going to be real bland and I'm gonna say there's three that I'm kind of leaning towards. It's I think um Jordan Belfort played by Leonardo DiCaprio and then actually Teddy Daniels played by DiCaprio as well in Shutter Island. And then swinging right back around to De, uh, De Niro with Raging Bull. Um all right you have to pick one. Uh, Wait, no I you, hold on hold on before you do that I'll give you a little time to to think on it. What what is it about Teddy Daniels that you you like? Well, I, think, I find this the most interesting. Well, I think it you know it's it's obviously it's not one of Scorsese's best films. I wouldn't venture to say that, but I think what's really interesting about that DiCaprio performance is the way it I think double backs upon itself, and mm-hmm. you're constantly seeing both him and I think Scorsese discovering what this guy kind of believes. And I think, I think it's maybe DiCaprio's best, in my opinion, maybe his best performance. And I think really? he is, I really do think he is at the top of his game there. And it's, you know, it's a fun movie, but I think DiCaprio elevates it to something a little bit more. And there's that, I mean, great scene in I think the parlor where he first meets the Max von Sydow character mm-hmm. and you don't quite see von Sydow all the way and DiCaprio kind of walks around and he's trying to peek his head over and just the way DiCaprio is moving kind of shows you with his physicality that he is somebody who is used to violence and to physical violence and it's the most idiosyncratic DiCaprio performance I think we've seen and I don't think that and he showed a little bit of it in The Departed but when you see him he's just he's coiled and he really looks like kind of a king cobra ready to just pounce on somebody Um, and I I feel like I'm talking about it and I'm convincing myself that's my favorite but then (laughs) I I could talk about you know Jordan Belfort and I talk about um, Jake LaMotta and I'm going to convince myself to go to them. So I think that it's tough to really pick one. Yeah. yeah. That that's sort of the fun of Scorsese though, because there's he has such a large catalog and there are so many things that you can it's almost like a lot of times the last thing that I have watched is the one that I want to like dive deepest into like like, oh well this is why it's great. Yeah, that's your new favorite. Yeah. Okay, so um we've talked about performances and we've covered a lot of, you know, traditional Martin Scorsese yeah. pictures, but you had a word for this Chris, and that being one-off yeah. Martin Scorsese pictures, which are the the non-gangster pictures, the non-violence pictures necessarily. Things like Hugo, things like The Color of Money, things like you yeah. mentioned this earlier, Aviator. But, um, After Hours, yeah. Aviator. Um, so let's let's go over some of those. What is his best one-off picture? Hmm. 
I I'll just go ahead and and start running. I I I, I think I got to if I don't know if King of Comedy quite fits. Only I be, absolutely think it does. But go ahead. Well, my the caveat mm. there being Robert De Niro. Actually, and, I'm wrong. No, it, it it's it's uh, Martin Scorsese. Yeah, 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 I yeah think you see the pre kind of the all of the things that he cares about the masculinity the isolation yeah. all those things are there with that the one offs you know with the exception of Hugo but the one offs are the ones that someone's are making him make you know what i mean versus something that he's making on his own well was okay what i was going to say was age of innocence is that one that he was forced to make no I, that, I think that was a dream project okay. right? was because, he ever forced to make a movie though i think all those movies you know, Aviator, Hugo, he wanted to make all those. I think. Well, though, those those are different, but like something like uh, The Color of Money, that was that was yeah, very that was much for, that was for the studio. The, exactly. the 80s. Yeah, that, <laughs> the that 80s. was very much of a situation where for Hugo, but you still there's still Martin Scorsese. And, and it's yeah. funny that um, I can't I, you know, I don't have it in front of me, but of the Oscars that he won for actors or helped ask uh, actors win for themselves, Raging Bull, which is, of course, you know one of his masterpieces, but then also, uh, Alice doesn't live here anymore, mm-hmm. uh, for Ellen Burstyn and yeah. then the color of money for Paul Newman. So it's but kind is of Paul Newman getting Kate Blanchett a, the aviator too. and then Kate Blanchett and the aviator. Oh, yeah. So, so it's kind of funny thinking that the actors Oscars you've won have been in non Martin Scorsese pictures. Was, was that Newman's first Oscar yes. though? Because well, I it, feel it, like, no, exactly. It was kind of a, a pat on the back. Yeah, And I mean, he is, he's definitely the best thing about that movie. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's a, it's not a great movie. It's really like, it is the closest thing to Scorsese on autopilot. I think it's him on autopilot, but it's still Paul Newman and Tom Cruise being it's still doing pretty their fun. Thing. I mean, it's not great, but it's, it is what it is. It still has like every, if, if it was condensed to like 20 minutes where it's just them playing pool and, you know, you take out all the exposition of like relationships and all of this garbage and just sort of focus on these two guys who are bonding and clashing at the same time. Um, that stuff is that that stuff is the best parts, but it's stitched together with so much just just really first draft sort of like. All right, this is how we get from this location to that right. one. It kind of makes you wish that he had an opportunity to work with Paul Newman again and then has another opportunity to work with Tom Cruise. Yeah. Yeah, have you ever have you guys ever seen The Hustler? Oh, yes. my God. Yeah, I mean, Paul Newman versus Jackie Gleason versus George C. Scott. <laughs> Sign me up, man. I mean, so in Paul Newman, he I'd probably say he's my favorite actor, but The Hustler is a movie that just does not work for me. Uh, really? I just... I think it's got moments and kind of – I think the there's some tricky sexual dynamics there that just don't quite work. And I think yeah. that it, it begins and it doesn't really build up to much. And I think the most riveting part is that first pool match. And I just think it's a movie that goes absolutely nowhere. So I think that when Scorsese mm-hmm. returns that material, I guess what would it be like 25 years later? I yeah, don't think there's like a that. lot to mine there. I think it's what the plan of mine is what eighty five or something like that. And I think there's not a lot to really mine there. Um, Peterson Hall, Scorsese apologist, everyone. Yeah. Um, <laughs> once again, ladies and gentlemen, if we have any hustler fans out there, send <laughs> send your uh, send your hate letters to us, and then we'll forward it on to Peterson Hill. And and if you haven't seen the hustler, it's on Netflix right now. Yeah. So. Yeah, I think that's when I watched it like a year ago for the first time, and I mean, I I, I wanted to love it because I mean Newman is. He's my guy. You know, he's yeah. probably the best looking person to ever grace the screen, but he's just. Thank, thank you. 
Thank you. We're all man crushing <laughs> there's, on there Paul a, Newman. There's a long-standing man crush of Paul Newman on this podcast <laughs> from from close to day one. Yeah, it's, it, before it gets out of control, I'll try and get the train back on, <laughs> on the tracks here. Um, so anything else you have to say about the one-offs, gentlemen? Well, yeah, I just wanted to talk a little bit specifically on – I my my favorite probably has to be with, with King of Comedy to the side being sort of like – it's almost a bastard child where it's not quite – It's in purgatory. Not quite pure, yeah, pure score says he but it's it's not quite a one-off john snow impure. yeah yeah um so i i'd have to go age of innocence to be mm-hmm. to be perfectly and yeah. and a lot of what i would say about it is the same as what i was saying about day lewis's performance is the the restraint in his um he he while it still feels vibrant and cinematic it doesn't it doesn't push you in a direction that doesn't fit the story that he's telling either. And, and there's something that still you, you know, with, with every one of these one-offs, there's still something that feels very Scorsese. And, and one of those things is the way that he lovingly sort of displays and explores sort of the roots of New York, the heritage of Mm -hmm. New York in a way that I think is far more effective than something like gangs of New York, which is sort of floppy in places like gangs of New York has, a handful of scenes that I adore and then several things where I just like, I don't know why Cameron Diaz is in that movie. Gaines of New York was meant to win, meant to win an Oscar. He directed that to win the best picture. Yeah, why is Cameron Diaz in any movies though? Like, <laughs> cause she's hot. Uh, Fair. Cause she's, cause she's hot. Next I even, question. I don't even think she's that attractive. I've seen her in real life. I've met her in real life and eh, whatever. All right. Um, again, send your hate mail to, um, okay. So anyway, what about, so what about you? Um, Peterson is what's your, favorite one-off you know i'd probably lean towards either hugo or i'd say maybe hugo or the aviator i think that you know the aviator may be the scorsese movie i've seen the most because it's always on hbo mm-hmm. and i whenever it's whenever it's on i can just put it on and i'm like huh i can watch this movie i think it's compulsively watchable and then i think hugo particularly that however long the scene is 10 or 15 minutes where he is doing the Melier stuff. It just, I think it hits incredibly well and you can tell he's, you know, that's the asthmatic kid. That's the kid who grew up watching these things and looked out his window watching gangsters and then dreamed of being, you know, making these things. And I think that all that's on display and I think it really is, you know, to have no better phrase. I think it's a magical movie in a lot of ways and you know it doesn't work you know some of the stuff with the Sasha Baron Cohen yeah that that stuff doesn't work as well and the whole goings on of the uh, the train station doesn't really go as well but yeah you know it's I think it when it gets to that moment I remember sitting in the theater you know being just bowled over emotionally mm-hmm. yeah yeah no i was the same way and it's sort of hugo's sort of this flower that doesn't really open itself up to you until about an hour in like it's it's maybe just before michael stuhlbarg shows up or around i guess maybe it's when when the automaton draws out the um the the image but it's it's sort of and i i think the thing that's uh, difficult with it is he's making a children's movie but then he's also he's his children's movie of course has to be a love letter to to cinema mm-hmm. and the the foundation of cinema um 
the the thing that I always get caught up with, and I just recently watched uh, rewatched it, is the fact that it does still feel so much like a movie that was made in the the early. 2010s where it's like oh we gotta we gotta sell tickets to 3d movies okay mm-hmm. give give an impossible 3d camera you know there's there's a few too many of those things right let's let's throw something at the, at the screen and and i'm gonna kind of defend that a little bit and say don't you look at it and say well here scorsese is you know almost 100 years well actually over 100 years after you know, a trip to the moon and all these Melies films and saying, right. That's where this, that's where the form began. And now potentially the next iteration of that form is going to be 3d and that kind of stuff. And I don't think there's really been, there's two or three movies that have used 3d. Well, that's gotta be, that's gotta be at the top for me though. You know, I think avatars, eh, it's okay. Not great. Um, it's no Titanic. No, I mean I saw the 3D restoration of that. It was fantastic. Um, but isn't but isn't that like you know Scorsese, who's a pioneer of the art form, as said, you know, he reinvents himself. I think that's what he was attempting to do. I don't know if and and this actually honestly is not as much a scoff at him as it is at. Uh, Hollywood in their like, I don't think, I don't think 3d is ever going to take off and become a normal, like no one is at home watching Hugo in 3d today. And no one in 50 years is going to be watching Hugo in 3d. Well, I've got my nine month old, you know, sleeping upstairs. And I know that when it comes time to start showing her movies, I'll be able to show her a Martin Scorsese movie when she's Nine or ten years old, which if you told me that ten years ago, (laughs) I would have said you're insane. Yeah, there's pretty much nothing there besides Um, that. I I actually had that exact same thought when when I was uh, watching Hugo a couple days ago. Well, and and when you watch it too, I mean, I guess part of me thinks this is this is why I care about movies, and this is why I was in film school. This is why I write about movies. This is why you know when. Most people are sleeping like I'm watching a movie or I'm, you know, I'm kind of downing this, I guess you'd say drug in some way. Like that's my drug. Like that's what I, that's what I love, you know? And I think yeah. that Scorsese shows that and to be able to share that with, you know, a child younger than, you know, 16, I guess is by the youngest you'd see a Scorsese film. I mean, I guess I saw when I was like 13 you know, I saw a taxi driver when I was 13, which, you know, <laughs> I mean, maybe that's why I am the way I am. Screwed you up for life. Blew your mind <laughs> yeah. open. But, you know, it's. It, I think that's something, too, is, you know, watching that movie and kind of him iterating what is important and what's magical about movies to him and being able to show that to my kid one day, you know, and who knows? She may be in a movie. She may not be. I hope she is. But. You know what? That, what you just said, would be a perfect way to end this, but I want to keep talking about Martin Scorsese. <laughs> I think we all want to keep talking about Martin Scorsese. Okay, so game time. Um, what actor do you wish he directed or would direct? Ooh. Gene Hackman. Okay. I mean, and, we, and, what, got... and what kind of picture? And what kind of picture? Um, that's, I mean, the the obvious thing would be to say like a gangster picture, but from perhaps the opposite end, like a chasing down the gangsters. Mm-hmm. Because I, I think yeah, like Gene Hackman could be a good like 
fifties mob boss, but like, but like a Southern sort of mm-hmm. like a, uh, Oh gosh, I can't think of the name of the, uh, uh, in help me out. Uh, no, I didn't know what, Oh, oh brother art thou. Um, and John not, Goodman. Happy uh, Daniel. Yeah. Not a, and not exactly a mob boss, but a, like, I, I think he could, he could pull off something like that quite well, or being that he's not going to do it now could have, you know, 10, 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but a more, you know, obviously a more serious approach, but at the same time, that's probably if that, if something like that had happened, it would have been one of those where it's, it would have been another Scorsese one-off where it's like, okay, he was experimenting. He was trying something. It didn't all work. It had, you know, it'd be one of those that we, we pile in like it, it has its times and it has its places, but it's not, yeah, it's not a, it's not whole cloth. Yeah. Yeah. All right. What about you, Peterson? Well, so if I was going to say, oh, pull somebody out of the grave, I'd say either back with Newman or James Dean. And then <laughs> if I was going to go today, if I was, you know, the head of a major studio, you know, all those studios out there listening, I've got my resume ready. You'd be um, surprised, man, how many <laughs> studios listen to our show. Um, I'd say, you know, Tilda Swinton is the person I'd say. Oh, boy. Get Tilda Swinton together with Scorsese. I mean, I don't know if you guys saw – now I'm trying to blank the name. Um, Doctor Strange? No. What was the Tilda Swinton movie she made last year with Edgar – not Edgar. Um, um, Matthias Schoenart, um, Ray Fiennes. Oh, it's like vacationing in Italy. No, like, I don't know. I don't know this. One. You have Jesus. even managed to stump Chris. It's it's the same. That it's is the, how obscure you are right now. You've even stumped him. It's the same director as um, who did I Am Love a few years ago. A bigger splash. So, no, I, I I don't even know about this. What is this? Oh God! So you guys have to see a bigger splash. Uh, the filmmaker he did I Am Love a few years ago. It is his name is and because I'm. You know, American, so I don't care about other people's names. Uh, Luca <laughs> Guadagino or something like that. Um, it's got, uh, what's her name? Dakota Johnson, Ray Fines, Matthias Schoenart. Uh, it's about a bunch of white yuppies vacationing in Italy in like this tiny island. And it looks, I mean, the first half you're like, I would kill to be here. And the second half you're like, yeesh, this is horrible. But um, Who do you want her to be in a Scorsese picture? I would put Tilda Swinton. Can I, why not put her as a mob boss? I mean, she. <laughs> um, I think she is icy and cold. You know, essentially give her her role, Michael Clayton, but give her a director who understands actors a little bit better. Hmm. Um, or give her. You know, she could easily have done what Kate Blanchett did in uh, Aviator. I mean, she's. I think Tilda Swinton. Obviously, Tilda Swinton's great, but. I, think she, I mean, was, she's the Gary Oldman of actresses. Yeah, and or she's the Dale Day Lewis. She's, you know, flies into every single role and disappears. And yeah, yeah, yeah. right on. Um, so apparently, I don't know if he auditioned, but I think he was in the running. But in Cape Fear, um, before he went with Nick Nolte, and I don't get this. I truly don't understand this. Before he went with Nick Nolte, the the other front runner was Harrison Ford. And so Harrison Ford in the Gregory Peck role in Cape Fear, Harrison Ford versus Robert De Niro in Cape Fear, that is a huge ball drop. I think they'd be in fisticuffs. How, how badass would that be? Martin Scorsese okay. wouldn't even have to direct it for it to be badass, but then you bring Martin Scorsese into it. Those three, 
I, I don't I mean that that's a heartbreaker that that didn't happen for some reason I thought you were you're going the opposite direction and like thank God this didn't happen how crazy is, is it they considered Harrison Ford I don't know why that's where my mind went no 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 that would have been I, I am heartbroken that that didn't happen that would have been so cool Harrison Ford as the as the attorney in Cape Fear it was it was like Rob- it was like eight years too soon though before his is well no i guess you got the fugitive around then Mm because i was gonna say you know like air force one i always think is like the the beginning of his like give me back my family his give me back my family period Witness in 86 yeah i've never seen witness hunter hunter's recommended on the show i know it's it was on netflix it's i i need to i I just i haven't harrison ford is uh probably my favorite movie star and so him uh, martin scorsese harrison ford movie i would like to see that happen now but i would have liked to have seen it even more in harrison ford's prime yeah is that disappoints me if they were to if he was going to cast harrison ford now what would he do exactly you know what i mean (laughs) exactly i mean maybe maybe like a like an older police actually i think he would have been good in the martin sheen role in the departed he probably would, he's probably too big of a movie star for that part, but I think he would have been good. There. I don't know if he would have been right because Martin Sheen in, in The Departed is a very nurturing sort of figure, and I don't know if Ford would have. It would have been different, but I mean yeah. that's that's but that would be the kind of role if what, I were to put him in. What if he was Mark Wahlberg? <laughs> I would love to see. I would the, love... la- the absolute last person you need to replace in that movie is Mark Wahlberg. <laughs> that is the one element that you cannot remove. If you that take that out, the entire Wahlberg performance that works for me too. It's 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 so per that for me it's that and I heart Huckabees. Oh, really? I no, saw, I, I, I love saw I Huckabees in theaters, and I just I haven't gone back. I was I was scarred. I thought it was horrible. You, and I'm in. Granted, I am not a David or Russell person. Yeah, the slightest. I think particularly his last couple of things have just been. I I have to divide David O. Russell the person from David O. Russell the director the the his work. Um, but I. He's he's one of those that every time I feel like, OK, I've had my fill and then I go back and I'm like, oh, oh, my God. Like he's still it's like it's like Noah Bombeck for me. Like there was a period where I thought Bombeck, he had he had run his course and he would never make another movie. Yeah, Margaret the Wet. Yeah, no, exactly. Um, and but it's just like I, I did not see Silver Linings Playbook, but like Joy, Joy, I adore I haven't seen Joy yet. Yeah, you liked that, didn't you? I remember listening to the podcast and thinking, how? It is such a misunderstood film. It's it's wonderful. Okay, you mentioned Joy. Martin Scorsese directs Jennifer Lawrence. How cool would that be? Or not cool? I, I don't, you know, I'm somebody who, she doesn't do a whole lot for me. Um, I don't think she's got a lot in her bag of tricks. And it's kind of the same performance over and over for me. I hope I hope she gets out of it a little bit. Um, you know, I'd much rather see somebody like Carrie Mulligan, Mooney, uh, Rooney mm. Mara. Mm. Um, I think, I, think I I think they're they have different strengths though. Like Mulligan, like I love and adore Mulligan, but I think I I, I think Jennifer Lawrence has a she's almost like a female Brad Pitt in that she if she's not told exactly what to do she just relies on charisma and sort of a affectations usually her movie star quality yeah yeah um but in the right hands is and i think russell at least with joy like i said i haven't seen silver Lang's playbook uh does does get a little more does bring a little bit more to the table Mm -hmm. not so much in uh american hustle 
um, where it's just sort of like she she is falling back on that like oh I'm I'm charming and can deliver lines with with a quip and and that whole like it's she almost needs to be reined in and I feel like Brent relying on relying on her charisma yeah look seriously saying you wish you would have seen Scorsese direct Passengers <laughs> I don't know Jake Jake would probably say yes he would much rather see Scorsese direct Passengers although like I don't want to see Scorsese sci-fi I feel like it would be like Truffaut doing Fahrenheit 451 or, or it would like, be like a you know Kubrick doing it I mean I wonder what would it what it would be like you know which maybe brings me to my next question too would be so the guy's 74 years old. Yeah. What's his next 10 years, which maybe the last 10 years he's directed movies, unless he's Clint Eastwood, who's, you know, never going to 184. Um, we know that he's doing The Irishman for Netflix. Yeah. And so that should, that. Be a ret- that should be a return to form. I'm not anticipating anything different from that. But it, I, I, it'll be good. It'll be interesting as well, though, because Netflix has been pretty hands off. And it's a the Irishman is a big, a big movie that has a lot of budgetary. When did that start getting thrown around, though, that he was going to do it? I feel like that was probably right after The Departed is when I heard that he made. Right. And new, and now it's on Netflix and that's the big story coming out. Yeah. there No, they've I mean, this is these were headlines. What a few weeks ago within mm-hmm. the past month yeah that, fairly recently that, that netflix is on board and it's basically car blanche just scorsese do what you need to do i mean i think it, more than anything it's there they're in the position right now where they've got a little bit of clout and they're trying to really just nail it with something and they see scorsese as an obvious home run for that sort of thing. right and reuniting with with de niro being a big draw no all of the above it makes a whole lot of financial sense you know well, looking at it you know when you look at Scorsese right now, I think it's going to be interesting to see because you have silence and just said he wants to do more kind of spiritually or philosophically based films. And he's doing the Irishman. So what's he do after this? You know, I mean, is, is it is he going to return to something like Last Temptation of Christ where he really retreats to his Catholic upbringing or is he going to be? more drawn to kind of the Catholic guilt side of things, you know, that's, that's maybe where I question what his next couple of years are going to be like. I can't answer what they will be. So I'll try and answer what I would like them to be. I would like to see him try and direct another life of Christ picture. And I'm not sure he can or will, but I would like to see it. And then, and, and perhaps one that is a little bit more traditional than the Last Temptation of Christ, I'd like to see him tackle that. And then also, I, I hadn't even considered this, but since it was brought up, I actually would like to see a Martin Scorsese sci-fi picture that covered the ground between science and faith and tried to find – that that tackled those two seemingly competing ideals but are more – Scorsese's more together. Sure, why not? Sure, why not? Yeah, that, that'd be – I think that'd be really interesting because I think you're seeing – I mean what – it's great about silence is the contemplative nature of it. And so I think if you put him yeah. in that scenario, but having him have a, have to really question from a, you know, a science perspective as well, what that means and what he's kind of getting towards, I think would be really interesting to see what he would come up with. You know, I, I don't know. I mean, it could be Solaris or it could be something more like Terrence Malick and the way he deals with, kind of faith in his films 
I, you know, I don't know. I don't know what that picture would look like. What if, what if it was, you know, because he's Scorsese is not, while he is a, an auteur and lives and breathes cinema, he's not a screenwriter. He collaborates with, uh, with screenwriters a lot. What if it was a collaboration with someone like Alex Garland, who most recently did Ex Machina, he, but he did several, he did, uh, 28 days later, he did Sunshine. And I think his directorial debut just got, it, uh, was it CinemaCon? Just got some early footage and people are pretty excited about it. Well, no, that hit his second, uh, sorry, his, talking about? yeah, Ex Machina was his first, his second film. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, which, but has been pushed back to 2018, I think. Mm. Um, yeah, but uh, Annihilation is what it's Annihilation, called. Annihilation, yeah. I, I think his approach as a screen, he, he already had kind of attacks these real heady sort of things. Did did you end up seeing Ex Machina? Yeah, I've seen Hunter? Ex Machina. Okay. Yeah. Did, we didn't talk about it, did we? Yeah. We did? Oh, no, we didn't. No. Okay. Yeah, we, we, yeah, we didn't talk we, about it. Okay. We planned to, and then it, I think it was one of those. A, A24 really screws us a lot of times on... On timing, release schedules, like, yeah. yeah. Um, but I, I could see that being an interesting collaboration, um, maybe in sort of the same way that he collaborated with Danny Boyle a few times. Mm-hmm. It, you know, obviously different, but having that sort of the stuff that he did with Boyle, I think, fit his style so much. Um, well, and also the artificial intelligence idea of man becoming god, mm-hmm. and so that's that's an interesting concept. He should direct Westworld. <laughs> that's what Martin Scorsese should do. <laughs> no, no. Well, a, um, a Westworld movie because I really I don't think Scorsese is great in the format of television. Vinyl shows you that. Here's the deal: is I would like to see him direct a western. I'd like to see him direct a sci-fi. And when I think western and sci-fi, <laughs> okay. I think Westworld. Okay, so. I see. <laughs> and actually, I'm, I'm I'm not kidding. I mean, legitimately, a Martin Scorsese Westworld would be movie would be something. Is is Josh Brolin in it? Yeah, no, his dad is. His dad comes <laughs> out of whatever he's doing right now to kill him. <laughs> um, but uh, no, that's. I I would watch that because he also hasn't done a Western. Yeah, no, exactly. And he loves Westerns. Yeah. You know what I mean? He loved The Searchers. I think you brought up an interesting point, Chris. We talked about Alex Garland, though, is that Alex Garland's a kind of devout atheist, too. And I think having those two in dialogue with each other mm-hmm. would make for something very, very interesting and very contemplative. That, that, that kind of, I mean, so much, that's sort of, you know, it wasn't atheism; it was Buddhism in in silence. But isn't that sort of what that film was? And you know, it's, it's this conversation, cl- culture clash. Yeah. Um, okay. What about a comedy? Uh, I don't know if he's got another one in him. Well, what would you say is the one? Oh, okay. I, mean, Wolf, oh, I think Wolf uh, of Wall Street. After hours, yeah. yeah, after hours. Oh, you see, you're in. I'm I'm probably in the minority here. I don't find Wolf of Wall Street funny. Like maybe it's maybe it's an uber black comedy. But it's I think Wolf of Wall Street, at least for me, is the the type of movie that I think it takes someone like Scorsese to pull off in that it is not didactic and speaking down to you and saying, Jordan Belfort is a bad guy. You should think he's a bad guy. Mm -hmm. It's presenting him in all of his uh, hubris and his, you know, it's based on his own his own book. And and so it's this he thinks he's this technicolor millionaire playboy sort of. And so it presents him as that and says, uh, well, the emperor has no clothes. Like yeah. he's he's actually a bad dude. And so there's 
a little bit for me, like I actually I cringe and you're going to love this hunter get itchy, get itchy. <laughs> with with some of the things that are maybe like even like the step sequence where he's uh, maybe the most commu- like at least in my theater when I saw it. Um, the thing that got the most laughs is him on the Quaaludes trying to crawl up right. the steps. Well, and I think that what Scorsese does in that is he makes you laugh at those guys and he makes you look at them and, you know, you don't necessarily want to be like those guys. Well, I don't necessarily want to be like those guys. Mm-hmm. There's two or three people in my life who've, you know, one person said, that's the handbook. Yeah, being Jordan Belford, that's the handbook. Yeah. Well, and there were people like that in my theater who were like, I mean, there, and, and that's the thing that I think he, it, it's difficult to pull that off and not seem like, you know, he's just broing it up. But I think he has, he has a level of uh, craft to the way that he presents it, that he can allow people to perhaps be wrong about it, but not, uh, not be, it's not, it's not like it's an amoral presentation i think that martin scorsese much like christopher nolan much like steven spielberg is he's funny but he's his humor is a release valve on something else yeah. in, a, in an otherwise dramatic movie you find christopher nolan funny there's there i mean no I, i'd say there's funny moments in, in the batman series there's funny moments in all of his movies wherever it's just you know a quip that or a look yeah it's, or something it's like better that. when it's yeah. wordless for nolan yeah but is it, but if it were to be an hour and a half to two hour long comedy it wouldn't work yeah. i don't think that he has that ability the, the departed is a very funny movie yeah, yeah, but it's, but it's hilarious. Just, yeah exactly um but in order to be a comedy director there has to be an element of just point and shoot you know right, what i mean right. and just let the let the actors do their thing and i don't think scorsese can do you know, for me i think that scorsese he's great at being Letting the actor be funny. Like we're laughing at the actor, mm-hmm. not necessarily the way Scorsese's directing it. He's letting the actor ha- kind of have full reign. You know, that step sequence you're referring to, Chris, is very funny, but it's, you know, you know, it's hard to watch that and think, well, I want to be like that guy. And I think right. that's, you know, I aspire to be that guy. You know, and I think what's really impressive about that sequence is he shows it once and then he gets home safely and then you see what actually happened. And the funny part is you think, yeah, how did I ever, ever, ever think the first way was true? And Scorsese kind of double backs and that's what's funny about that scene. And he does the same thing. It's 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 almost this whiplash or slap in the face of the audience for like for like. I can't believe you believed it. He does the same thing when he says, and then I went to prison and all of this. And then, and then he, I don't remember if it's directly to the camera in my mind. It is. And says, I, none of this happened. I, I didn't because I'm rich, you know, it's he, and, and that's, that's the thing that I think people, people who said, Oh, well, it's just embracing all this kind of missed. Like if you don't think when actual Jordan Belfort shows up at the end and, um, and is presenting you basically the, bullshit artist pin uh moment again and and scorsese's winking at you if you don't catch that that's on you the best the best way i can sum it up is that a martin scorsese comedy would be a waste of martin scorsese because he would have to pull himself back in order to make the comedy work 
Yeah, I mean, and that's the thing with After Hours. After Hours is a weird, bizarro sort of like Big, he still gets in in the way a little bit where you have right, the these comedy. incredible, you know, focus pulls or very precise camera movements or or whatever that are sort of clashing with. Oh, hey, there's Cheech and Chong. Yeah, and exactly. And sometimes the funniest movies are not even the best movies. You know what I mean? And so the best comedy directors, the best in the funniest movies. There's an element of just letting letting the comedy reign free Mm -hmm. and so like i said i think that his that his talent is so much that he would probably interfere with that he would for lack of better words that the camera would get in the way yeah i'm not i'm not gonna i'm not gonna disagree with you on that i mean i think i think if he was to do another comedy it would need to be an after hour style like dark dark comedy sort of but I don't know. And it might not even be that funny because it's not like After Hours is that funny. Well, and, and also, like, is it going to sell in the 21st century? Because now, like, now everything is an Apatow style of, like, shoot all improv and then right. put it all together in post. And, and he's not going to do that. Yeah. yeah. And he shouldn't. And, the, and again, he's 74 years old. He shouldn't be doing that. He should be doing uh, things that actually take proper advantage of his abilities. I think I see. we're talking a lot about Scorsese in... Uh, not the Twilight years because we're not quite there yet, but we're talking about the second half of his, of his career a lot right now. You know, mm-hmm. do you guys prefer that half or do you prefer kind of I don't know, we'll call it eighty nine and before, like Last Temptation of Christ and before? Or like, what's y'all's period that you really associate yourself with with Scorsese? This is going to be kind of a bad answer, but in some ways, I think I may in. I think I think that pre eighty nine is quintessential Scorsese. That's how I describe it. Is if you said Martin Scorsese, I would think pre nineteen eighty nine. That now that doesn't mean that I don't love a lot of the work post nineteen eighty nine. But what pops into my head is pre eighty nine. It's it's a mixed bag for me, but I do I think I do still compartmentalize him as um, I honestly maybe the eighties are their own thing, and then Raging Bull and before is its own thing. Um, that's fair. And, and then, and then everything after Goodfellas on is more contemporary for me. And it's except, except Goodfellas feels like it belongs in the raging bull and before, even though there's a separation of 10 or so years, but I feel like it ushered in the next, you know, you, you then go to casino, you then get the departed after, which feels not exactly the same, but it feels like a a relative to Mm -hmm. Goodfellas. It feels like. It is the as much as Raging Bull is the punctuation point on early Scorsese. It, it feels like Goodfellas is the uh, opening paragraph of contemporary Scorsese. All right. What about um, you, Peterson? I don't know. I mean, I mean, if you're going to tell me put in a Scorsese movie right now, you know, I'd probably put in something in the second half just because I think they're more fun. Mm-hmm. I think that his take silence out of it, but I think that. The energy is a little bit higher in his new stuff. I think you know, The Departed is endlessly rewatchable. Yeah. Um, I probably, you know, if I was going to save two or three Scorsese films, it's probably Raging Bull and Taxi Driver and, you know, Last Temptation of Christ probably. I mean, those are, I mean, maybe not, but I mean, those are a little bit earlier Scorsese. And I think that that's what's hard to really think about is I think he is really. I think he's a lot more fun right now. You know, Wolf of Wall Street is despicable as those people are. They're fun. Like the aviator is about Howard Hughes and it's anxiety ridden, but it's fun. And I think he's easier to watch right now, but not necessarily better. 
if that makes I mean, sense. it's it, it's a different, yeah, it's a different a different wavelength, a different exploration. A little I mean, bit I think, more mainstream. And I, I think the funness is also like the fine tuned nature of him as a filmmaker, of Thelma Schumacher as an editor, like all of that working together in tandem, um, or the two of them working together in tandem. I mean, because like the my first thought walking out of the Wolf of Wall Street was like, I just sat through a movie that's three hours long, made by a couple of seventy plus year olds. And it was the most vibrant thing I've seen all year. Um, it's it, it, it's I think that is almost a uh, a part of their a, a factor in their uh, ability as masters, I guess, versus there's a lot of things that are hairy or weird about maybe the 70s stuff like there. There are parts of Taxi Driver that are, you know, the audio is weird or awkward or there's there's little like bumpy moments still learning moments. Yeah. He's still but, learning. but it's endearing and it's also, it's endearing. It's charming. Uh, but it's also this sort of like, even, even go back to who's that knocking at my door. And it's, you know, that is a flawed movie with, um, you know, some scenes that are interjected because the studio said, Oh, well to distribute this, we need some nudity, but somehow it all sort of fits and feels like it, you know, it, I I struggle to find a like I I only recently saw Who's That Knocking at My Door, but I struggle to find a first time film, a like early first time film because it's it's one of those that I think you could even say is like pre Scorsese. I I could actually go I could actually go even further than that. Have you guys ever seen The Big Shave? Yeah, yeah, but that's a short film. Well, but uh, but The Big Shave, um, I mean, how all of us went to film school maybe two of us in quotation marks, but all of us went to film school. Um, that is the least heavy handed commentary yeah. I've yeah, ever yeah. seen from a film student. Sure. Uh, but what I, what I was going to say is you still feel the roots of everything in who's that knocking at my door. Um, I mean, from, from the opening scene of that fight, that's mm-hmm. perfectly choreographed. And it's like, Oh, this is a guy who from off the bat, like just from the very opening frame, you're like, you know you're in good hands. And he you knows know. exactly what he's doing. Yeah, yeah. And I think, and I don't even know if we've mentioned it once, but you know, Mean Streets. I think watching Mean Streets is, you know, even what's it, forty-two years later, like you see the emergence of a landmark talent cinema. And mean a, a couple landmark talents. No, I mean, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah Harvey Keitel as well. And it's just, in all of his preoccupations are there, and it. I could easily make the argument that his most personal films are Mean Streets and Silence, and the 42-year difference in the two really – I mean, you can compress that down, and there, there's – the lines right there. I mean, looking at Harvey Keitel, just searching and searching and trying to figure out what he should do, and you've got De Niro's Johnny Boy. and The fact that Scorsese is doing the voiceover for Keitel's character – like there's there's something to the person an, an personal nature there pers- yeah person there um all right it's gonna rewind the tape just a little bit what I would <laughs> truly truly love to see Martin Scorsese do is a horror film and the horror film I'd like I almost wish there was never this was never filmed it was just a book I would love to see Martin Scorsese's The Exorcist. 
because I'd love to see him do a horror film. And then the book, and, if you've ever you, read, and then you bring, the if Catholic. you've read the book, the book is Catholic AF <laughs> as compared to the movie. <laughs> I have not read the book. <laughs> no, no, absolutely. The, the book, the, 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 the movie is just, I'm not going to say superficial, but it doesn't, it's not nearly as it's Catholic a William as the Freakin book. It's film. Yeah, exactly. It's not nearly as Catholic as the book. So had there never been a exorcist movie, I would love to see Martin Scorsese's The Exorcist. Well, and even think, now, I'd like to see it. And, and I wonder, too, I think if, if he had another – because I think Shutter Island is kind of a horror, and I think that mm-hmm. Cape Fear is kind of a horror. Yeah, certain, um, or at least at least evolves. And by the third act, it's, it's, it's a horror. It's, no, yeah. he could scare the shit out of you. I guarantee yeah. Martin Scorsese. Yeah. In, in some ways, I think it's a tragedy that he hasn't done more horror. Well, and one of his favorite movies is the uh, – I want to say it's 1960, but The Haunting. Um, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And – I would love to see Scorsese take on a traditional kind of like bump goes in the night horror yeah. film where, you know, you've got characters stuck somewhere. And I, I don't know. I'd love to see him kind of restrict himself and confine, confine himself and really works in a tiny space where he has to figure out how to evolve and move in one tiny location and make the camera still – race around and vibrant but still be still and quiet enough to be scary do you i don't i i would have liked to see that i don't know if at this point in his career i would like to see it though it almost feels like a kevin's I, I would rather trade that in for right it, it, yeah i would we've talked about father scorsese i would have kind of liked to have seen a martin scorsese as much as i love everything he's produced i would have i would kind of like to see him just be a horror director like a like a Val Luton is from, you know what I mean yeah <laughs> wherever that's that's what he's then, known for. then we wouldn't be having this discussion or we would we, be having a different discussion be, though yeah. is because he would be the best horror director I guarantee it. but would he have been appreciated in his I, I he would have been he would have been more of a cult director we would have appreciated yeah. him okay. we would have appreciated Fair. him and that's all that matters <laughs> so he's like a Ty West you're saying you, you wish he's like a current day oh. Ty West interesting maybe yeah because Man, Ty West is somebody he, – he has the preoccupation with Westerns and things like that. And mm-hmm. he obviously has an eye for, you know – Well, he understands genre. That's the thing that I think Ty West does so well is he he really – like he understands how and why it works and then how to bend it. So it's like, like something like um, House of the Devil is not just a like, oh, look, I'm making an 80s horror movie. But it's – it's using that as the jumping off point and then pushing it further. Yeah, because, I mean, that's, uh, you know, I didn't think of it until I literally said it. But, yeah, Ty West is kind of the, the horror Scorsese in some way because he really is a student of film. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I think that you can't watch a Scorsese film and not look at the million references he has. You know, the beginning of uh, Silence, it feels like Kurosawa. Oh, yeah, and yeah. That first scene amongst the hot springs feels and moves like a Kurosawa picture. Well, and, and what about all of the fog throughout it? Like that, it, it has. There is this- there is so much to say about that. that yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I, I, Martin Scorsese not doing horror that needs to happen. I will. I, we need to we need to start one of those stupid petitions that no one <laughs> pays attention to. To Martin Scorsese, please direct a horror movie. So, gentlemen, we have already discussed what is his best movie or masterpiece. Your answer may be the same, but what is your favorite P. 
Peterson as our guest here today. What is your favorite Martin Scorsese picture? Uh, whew, all the above. No, um, you know, when I was, I guess I was 14, I was given Roger Ebert's The Great Movies for my birthday. And I walked up, I read it front to back, and I walked up and I was like, to the blockbuster where, you know, used to exist. Uh, and I, I read a taxi driver because I thought that was the most compelling film that he wrote about. Mm-hmm. And I think, I mean, if I was going to go, I, I'd probably say taxi driver if I was going to say my favorite. I mean, it's, it's hard because every one of his films is kind of means something to me in some way. And, you know, I probably saw the departed eight times in the movie theater in 2006. And, you know, I kind of raced to gangs in New York a few times. Cause that's when I was in kind of the prime of my movie going life, but it's probably a taxi driver. And if I was going to say, I want to see one Scorsese film on the big screen, presented in celluloid, I think it would have to be Taxi Driver because it's the movie that got me into movies. It's the so, movie. You're, so you, your favorite would then also be the one that you consider as Masterpiece? They're both one and the same? Yes, and I don't you know, I don't want that to be didactic anyway, but to me... <laughs> no, I mean, that's fair. No, to me, it's just, it's the movie that... Got, it literally is the movie that got me into movies. You know, I rented... Five movies that day when I was at Blockbuster was Days of Heaven, La Dolce Vita, Ron, Do the Right Thing, and Taxi Driver. And I Ooh, think that I was watched, a, it was a busy day. Yeah. It was it was a long two days, and I think I watched <laughs> Taxi Driver three times in like forty eight hours. And I was like, "What? So what is this?" I was like, yeah. "You know, I couldn't quite wrap my head around it." You know, um, and to this day, I think that's the one that when I rewatch it. I don't know if I f- find the most upon rewatch each time, but kind of it evolves in my wa- in my mind a way that the other films don't in some way. Yeah, I get that. I I'll say I've seen Taxi Driver on celluloid once, and it was like sort of a dirty print, and it was sort of the perfect way. Like it felt like something that would have been playing in one of those movie houses that Bickle. Uh, yeah. would, would would go to it. Kind of how you want to see it, right? Yeah, it had like green streaks on on a few of the reels, and like it was a it it had this whole texture lived in texture to it. It's how it should be seen. Yeah, yeah. It's Tarantino's yeah. whole argument. You know, the reason you go to the you know the New Beverly to see his print of Pulp Fiction is because right. it's got the life and the energy, and it's got the scratches, and it feels like you're watching projected movies instead of digital. Right. I I think for the record I think Scorsese or I I think Tarantino is wrong, but I understand his uh his very romantic sentiment as well. Uh what about you Hunter? What is your favorite? Okay, if I were to pop one in right now, it would either be Taxi Driver or The Last Temptation of Christ. And whenever we talked about it, like I said, the, I mean, technically the movie's sacrilegious and blasphemous, but I like it. <laughs> and we'll just and also i th- I feel like silence as the years go by it will probably be both his masterpiece and my favorite yeah but since it only was released what like four months ago I, it wouldn't be good criticism for me to just start to say this is it but right. i can see it becoming well, but it's it's daily growing no so it, it will it will probably be that with favorite and best you know your favorite, are you going to want to pop it in all the time? Or is it one that, yeah, maybe your favorite, but... It's not that, necessarily the easiest to watch. Yeah, yeah that's, that's a good true. point. Because Silence is, is 
kind of majestic and beautiful and incredibly hard to sit through, which is probably why I would kind of lean away from it being my favorite. But it's also very much the novelist's story, whereas Taxi Driver is Martin Scorsese. Does that make sense? Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. Okay. I'm going to go and... I Peterson, you kind of called me out on this, and I don't know if this was just a like a thumbs up or like I can't believe you did this. But uh, when I put together my Martin Scorsese ranked list, which I am constantly changing, like every time I go back and and watch another Scorsese film, I sort of tinker. But The Departed was at the top, remains at the top. It is the one, and it's particularly for that like. I can watch The Departed at any time in college. Like I the only reason I don't say The Departed is the film I've seen the most is because I don't think I've seen it start to finish the most. But it was always on like sophomore and junior year in college, like whether I was in Tulsa or Norman, it was just like it was perpetually on everywhere. And we were constantly quoting it. I mean, I it was it's the first movie that I had seen twice within the same week in a movie theater. What's so cool about The Departed is it it tastes like candy, but it's good for you. So I had maybe maybe five or so years ago. Um, I think it was like Thanksgiving or Christmas. Uh, my wife's uncle was in town, and um, he knows that I like movies, and so he he would always come up to me and be like, "Oh, have you seen this? Have you seen that?" He's like, "I watched the weirdest, most like it was most compelling but bizarre movie last night, The Departed. Have you seen it?" I was like, "Oh yeah, I love that movie." He's like what the hell was going on in that film? And like, then had a half hour discussion of like, okay, so this happens and this happens. Mm-hmm. And it's like, but it's, it's like, it's not one Oh one Scorsese. It's like you, you kind of like, it would be a terrible movie. I think to recommend as the first entry entry point, but also it's the type of movie that you do have to sort of watch multiple times because he is, he is using cinema at its best um, to condense so much story into so little time, even if it is like an hour or two hours and 20 minutes. it's I don't know. I, I feel like there's a lot of people that I went to college with, you know, because it was 2006. Mm-hmm. I think, yeah, actually, I can remember the day it came out too, October 6th. Um, and I remember there were a lot of bros at the University of Alabama who were all about The Departed. It's badass. It. It's I, badass. I well, mean, and, and I mean, the you, it, it does have that ability to just be, I mean, because there is the macho police, Boston police officer, fucking firefighters. Yeah. Acting like yeah. Here, here's the, here's the cool thing about, um, the Departed is I would actually probably qual, even though it's a mob movie, it might be a one-off. You might put it in the one-off category, <laughs> even though it's his, even though it's his only best picture and his only best director, but it might qualify as a one-off. It, well, it's, and I'm glad you bring that up because I think it is a, it's the type of film that was sort of a like, okay, we've, we missed you on so many occasions. We'll give it to you. But it's also, I think, worthy in its own right. No, I mean, I didn't want, because this would probably qualify as a favorite for me. And so I didn't want to steal it from you because I know it was yours. <laughs> but no, The Departed is badass. I love The Departed. The Departed, if, I mean, I've seen it 20 times probably because yeah. it's endlessly rewatchable. And I mean, if I was going to pop something right now, it may be The Departed. I mean, it really it may be his most fun movie because that first yeah. twenty minutes, which is all exposition, which should be banal and infuriating, he is cross cutting between narrative and narrative, and then you've got Mark Wahlberg doing whatever the hell Mark Wahlberg is doing in that movie. <laughs> 
That is the, yeah, that is those peak Mark Wahlberg. I mean, fingers Mark Wahlberg. It's his only good performance, you know. Um, in, <laughs> Clearly, you haven't seen the other guys, but moving on, eh, he's okay in that or um, anything. But you know, that whole movie. I think watching it the first time. I mean, the energy just mm-hmm. propels you through it. And I think, I think one thing we haven't talked about at all with Scorsese too is uh, his female leads. Um, and I think Vera Farmigan, that really yeah. is, I think, outstanding. Yeah, and that's the first time I had seen her. Mm-hmm. Yeah, same here. Yeah, I think it's the first time a lot of us had seen her. And I think with like two or three scenes, maybe three or four, but she gives a lot of depth to a character that shouldn't have any. And that, you know, that um, scene, and that first scene when she is with DiCaprio and she's basically grilling him and he's being a complete ass about it. She's just yeah, yeah. tit for tat with him. She is squaring up squarely with him. That, are you talking about the one where, where he's like, oh, you want me to tell, the, tell you the truth? I'll tell you the truth. Yeah. Uh, that yeah, first yeah. one she, where they're just together and talking well, about And the way that she turns on a dime there in from, from like, I don't believe you to, oh my God, I've overstepped. And I, I totally trust that you're telling me the truth. It's that's a difficult move to make. And she does it seamlessly. I love it whenever you have an actor and a movie star in the same scene and neither one of them swallows the other, Mm -hmm. you know what I mean? They're both with each other. That's so cool. Yeah. And also I'm, I really miss Jack Nicholson. I really, I mean, you miss (laughs) Gene Hackman. I really, really miss Jack Nicholson. He's coming out of retirement. He's coming out of retirement to star in the Tony Erdman remake, which oh yeah, Amy or Tina Fey I think is in it. Um, but yeah, and watching that, you know that I mean Jack Nicholson, who's always great. I mean that is that's his kind of Bill the Butcher. It's not I don't think it's nearly as effective as Daniel Day Lewis, but you know it's almost like Jack Nicholson's like eh, I don't really care. I'm just going to show up. Yeah, there was a time there was a time an Irishman couldn't even get a job. 30 years later, we had the presidency. I love it. <laughs> but there's, he, and, and he does the rap movement and he's like, yeah, rap. <laughs> well, and, and that's like that's the type of thing that in a in another iteration of a movie that's just a adaptation of a Hong Kong action movie, you're not going to get that sort of depth to. Uh, to a character like that, like no. the because there's this whole subplot of he, dude is insane, and the way that it you know it's very like straightforward in the fact that he's insane, but at the same time because everything else is going on, you kind of you don't focus on it, and so there's this kind of push pull with the way that he approach like when he they're in the the little cafe or diner or whatever, and he goes up to the. Uh, the priest, the priest and the yeah. sister and and it just i can't remember exactly what it is that he says but, but it's it makes just, some sick comment yeah, yeah it's it's just jarring and you're like what was that well but also he, he says something like how the young boys and he drops them a picture and just walks out well um, and also alec baldwin in that movie here's the thing in, in any other year every single person in that movie gets a best supporting actor oscar or at least a nomination at least a nomination, nomination, yeah. at least yeah. a nomination. Well, i i gotta in I don't know if it is or not, but the dildo scene in oh, the party, yeah. it's improvised. It's got to be, right? It has to be that Jack Nixon was like, hey, Marty, like, let's let's do this. <laughs> I mean, it feels like it. I don't know, though. I mean, it also and that's that's like one of the few times where he almost gets self-referential. Like it, it feels like a 
a sort of taxi driver callback in a lot of ways. Um, and, but there's God, and he's wearing that, he's wearing that ugly bucket hat. There's just, there's so much, there's so much to love about and everything in this. Yeah. Film. In the best scene of that movie. I mean, to me, it's as good as that screenplay is, is the wordless scene where the cell phones are just ringing. And it's just the way it's just cross cutting between DiCaprio, Damon and DiCaprio's face is just, Oh, like that scene, like even thinking about it, like it's, it was so tense. And Scorsese draws out that tension. And so much of that is to, to, to kind of close the circle here, the empathy of you, while Matt Damon is the bad guy in this movie, you all, you empathize with him and you understand like he's, he's the bad guy who's honestly trying to get out of this vicious cycle that he was born into essentially. And so there's something about the way that you you're investing that character enough that that tension is really like you almost don't know who you want to win. You and it's the the character development is so good by that point where you have DiCaprio and De Niro or not De Niro, DiCaprio and Damon um, uh, together. And and it's sort of like I kind of want Damon to get away with it. So he gets out and gets his mm-hmm. law degree and gets, gets his stuff together. Yeah. But at the same time, Billy Costigan has been through some shit. Yeah. yeah. I always yeah. root for DiCaprio in that movie. I think I think uh, Damon's such a little sniveling prick in that movie. And he's <laughs> he's great at it. He's so good at it. But he's a but he is a product of his environment. That's that's the that's the thing is is it's a and you see that he is he's the one kid who's smart enough to get out of it on the other side, um, whereas Costigan is sort of like you know he he had two different you know two different accents and um, he's Southie on the weekends, uh, whereas as uh, Damon's character is sort of the 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 one kid who comes from that neighborhood who has a chance and he gets so close. Yeah, he's shooting blanks too. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah, de- yeah. De- <laughs> with Vera Farmiga, no less. Yeah, quite literally. Um, Departed is so cool. It's a TNT afternoon movie, but it's also you have know, you ever watched on TNT though? It's impossible to follow. It's on t- was it on really? TNT? Okay, oh. see, I haven't. No, it's it is like I and and granted, I when I watched it, I came in like it was probably at least an hour in. And it was like, there were things that were cut out, but I couldn't have told you what was cut out. And then also like, just, you know, half the dialogue has to be, has to be. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Side story is watching casino on USA or whatever. Freak you, freak you. Never, never seen it. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's something else. Okay. This is the first and probably only time this will ever happen, but I have to be the adult in the room and we have, we have to conclude this. Okay. Um, okay. So any parting thoughts on. Uh, Martin Scorsese. Go watch his stuff. That's <laughs> I, I've got actually something I do want to actually close out on, and that is, and I don't, I don't want to get morbid or anything, but let's say hypothetically, Silence is the last film that we get from Scorsese. Knock on wood, we we get we get ten, fifteen more years out of him, but hypothetically, Silence is it. Do you feel? How do you feel about that? Silence being the last movie or his career. <sighs> The the last the last movie he makes, I you know I don't want him to 
to, to perish, obviously. Mm-hmm. But no, I mean, silence is a good closer. If, if he were to retire and like live on an island or something, God bless you, man. <laughs> he goes and writes Western books like with Gene Hackman. <laughs> exactly. But no, if he were to just go live on an island or something like Igmar Bergman, or, no, God what, bless you. More, more likely what he would do is dedicate his entire, the rest of his existence to restoring films. Yeah. Well, I, I think for me, I think silence in some ways feels like a last film. Yeah. I, in, I don't want to say, Hey, he's, you know, Marty stop making movies. Cause I think he's one of the greats ever, but it feels like the culmination and it feels like he's reached this kind of Zen like piece, maybe within himself that, you know, he is maybe not done with movies, but he's done propelling the form in some way. I mean, as great as silence is, it feels as a kind of a reemergence of his early talent while also being a kind of, it's Cast. sort of a conversation with his early self yeah. from from the other side. I do not want Martin Scorsese to die, but to end this where we began, if he wants to say silence is it and then go become a priest or a deacon or something <laughs> like that, I would be 100% fine with that. Fair. All right. Well, I think that's a great place to wrap up. So I'm going to say that is a wrap for this very special episode of War Starts at Midnight. Find us online at warstartsatmidnight.com for show notes, fantasy movie league recaps, and more. Or say hello on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at WSAMPod. And Peterson, thank you so much for joining us. If people want to check out your writing and discussion on movies, where can they find you? So I'm on psychodrivein.com, and you can check me out at Peterson W. Hill. Uh, that's my Twitter handle. Uh, thank you guys so much for having me on. It was a blast talking about Martin Scorsese. Enjoy uh, the podcast. Well, the pleasure was all ours. I insist you come back, Peterson. This was this was a lot of fun. Yeah, I'm I'm glad you were here for this because you definitely like. I think your love of Scorsese brought a whole lot more to the conversation and your like ability. I'm always like stammering to like. You remember that one scene and you're like pulling out lines of dialogue and it, it, like it was great. Thank you. It turns into the Chris Farley show. Yeah, it's, everyone gets excited. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much for for coming on. I love that we didn't talk about uh, his interview on the Chris Farley show. Probably for the best. (laughs) But anyway, long story short, thank you very much for being on the show, Peterson. It was a a lot of fun. Yeah, it was a blast. So if you enjoy the show, please rate and subscribe to it in iTunes or wherever you get podcasts. It'll help us grow the Midnight Warrior clan. And more importantly, it'll make you feel awesome. On the other hand, if you're the trolling type who simply hate listening through these credits, Go ahead and tell us everything we got wrong about Martin Scorsese at hello at warstartsatmidnight.com. Or if you're a narcissist, you can leave us a voicemail and see if we play it. Just ring that bright red telephone at 484-424-6362. The War Starts at Midnight theme song was produced by Justin Streck. Join us another fortnight when Jake returns to discuss the Netflix documentary miniseries Five Came Back. Spielberg, Coppola, Kasdan, Greengrass, and Del Toro discuss the lives and work of Weiler, Capra, Stevens, Houston, and Ford after they enlist in the armed forces and document World War II. All three episodes are available now on Netflix. Thanks for listening, folks. Hey, Big Polly, don't move for nobody. Thanks so much for having me on, guys.